Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 2, that's, that's what my family reads every Christmas morning. After we, when we were kids, my dad liked to milk it out. You know, when you're a little kid and you wake up early and you're like, ah, presents, Christmas, ah, and you run in there. And my dad had this spiritual gift that I share with him where we enjoy harassing people. We, jo- we enjoy making life difficult for people. Maybe that's why I like to preach so much. Um, maybe that's why he enjoyed numbers and accounting. We, I had to get that jab into those accountants. We had to clean our rooms on Christmas morning, which when we got older, we started catching on. If we clean it earlier, you know, now he was still nitpicky, right? So he'd still walk in and there'd still always be something disheveled or out of sorts that we'd have to pick up or clean up. Or he'd make us go downstairs and clean the basement or something crazy, you know. <laughs> Sweep out the garage. It's Christmas Day. And then after we did all that and we're all excited and the presents and the glitter and the lights and the angels, you know, and baby Jesus. And the whole, we had to read the Bible, Anybody else have to read the Bible on Christmas Day? It's not so bad as you get older, but when you're eight, I mean, my goodness, right? Break my fingers. It was just painful. Now, if you're eight and your family does this, tough darts, okay? It's good for you. But we had to sit and we had to read the Christmas story. We still do this when my family all gets together. Uh, we, We actually have the kids read it. And sometimes my dad, just to be honored, he seems like sometimes he'll get the King James version out, you know, and the kids are struggling out through the, the these and the thines and the freaketh me outists and all that stuff. And, and really wrestling with what is this, you know? Um, and they'll pass it around in the cousins, you know, Sam Bailey and, and Dave and their cousins, they'll read the Christmas uh, story as we're waiting to to get the presents open. And, and I look at them and think, oh, you don't even know the half of this. <laughs> at least you didn't have to clean anything here. And we always struggled with where to finish reading the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2, right? Did, did you experience this? Because there's a story an incident that happens like eight days after his birth. So we think, oh, well, that's not part of the Christmas story. Let's move on. But this is where we find Simeon's song. And Simeon's song is the fourth of the lyrics of Christmas that we're looking at in this brief Advent series. And I, gotta, I, I, I need to confess, this is my favorite of the songs. And when we read it, you're going to be like, you're demented. Why is that your favorite? And we would always end our reading before we got to this song, primarily because oh, by this time, the, my dad has just pushed the envelope too far. And even mom's like, Larry, let him open the present. You know, she doesn't talk like that. That sounds like some lady from New Jersey. But we would open the presents finally, and we would stop before this part of Scripture. But it's so good. It's so important. 
It's so, it, it's, it's a huge part of the Christmas message. You see, one of the things that I want to convince you of today is that the Christmas message is combative. The Christmas message is divisive. And Simeon knew it. In fact, you just sang songs that talk about this combativeness. You just sang songs that talk about this divisiveness. You just sang Christmas carols. All the carols, all the hymns get it, except for things like Rudolph, right? Except for the commercialized, driven songs about Santa and Rudolph. But the old carols, the old hymns, they, can, they convey this. We're going to dive in. We're going to look at this. And it's in Luke chapter 2, starting, uh, I think, in verse 22. 21, let's start there. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, and the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what this custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, (laughs) when if this is part of his blessing, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. This is a reading from God's word. When you read that passage, perhaps Christmas doesn't jump off the page at you, but it is Luke chapter two. Luke's gospel is the only one that really goes into the nitty gritty, into the details of the birth of Christ. And this is included for us It's included for us for a couple of reasons. One is to demonstrate that Jesus' parents, even when Jesus could not fulfill the law on his own, his parents were good Jews. They were good Hebrews. And they are going to fulfill the law for him. And they take him to the temple on the eighth day, and they circumcise him, and they give him his name, Jesus, and they offer the purification uh, sacrifice. In the law, it was said that you could either give uh, a a, a uh, spotless lamb could give a spotless goat, a, a spotless bull, or two doves or two pigeons. The poor people gave the doves and pigeons. This also tells us, and I think Luke includes this, it tells us something about the economic state in which Jesus was born into. That they're good, righteous parents, but they are also poor. 
This flies in the face, not only of how we think about righteous people today, but how especially they thought of righteous people in the ancient world. Righteous people are rich. Righteous people, those who follow Jesus, he blesses, right? He gives them stuff. But we're going to see throughout this passage, there's correctives for that type of thinking. The part that of the song that I want to focus on, though, it's not really part of the song. It's what, it's what Simeon says after he blesses Joseph and Mary. It's what he says when he says that he will cause the rising and falling of many. Jesus came to be divisive. Jesus came to bring combat. Now you're thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't he come to bring peace? How did the allies bring peace to France? Through D-Day. How does a surgeon bring peace to your body when you're ravaged with cancer? With a scalpel and the spilling of your blood. And it's that kind of peace that Jesus is bringing. It's a peace that only can happen on the other side of combat. Now, it's interesting, a few weeks ago here in Ray, uh, there was a choir concert, the annual Christmas choir concert, and they performed Handel's Messiah, not the entire thing. They performed the Hallelujah Chorus, probably the the best known piece from Handel's Messiah, and uh, only one person stood for the Hallelujah Chorus, which is a huge faux pas, by the way. Not to stand. I remained seated because I didn't want to be that person, you know. The, the, I chose to sit, but I felt guilty. I felt really guilty. I should have stood. Okay. And yeah, Bethany Brenner, she stood. You're supposed to stand. You're supposed to sing along. It's tradition. And it's interesting because the Hallelujah Chorus is performed over and over and over and over and over again. It's probably one of the most performed um, classical pieces in the world. And some purists, some classical snobs, they say, you know what? It should only be brought out by excellent musicians for special occasions, i.e. Easter and Christmas. It shouldn't be performed by high schools, by junior highs. It shouldn't be performed by people who aren't properly trained. And other critics will go on and say, you know what, though? Regardless of how poorly it's performed, it's still powerful. Regardless of how poorly it's performed, it's still powerful because it's demonstrating how masterful it is. Now, the interesting thing with the Hallelujah Chorus, and maybe you've got it going in your mind, you know, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. Maybe you're a bass, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. You know, whatever you are, maybe you've got it going in your mind, the Hallelujah Chorus. But there are some lines in there that are ripped from the book of Revelation, from the book of Isaiah. It's taken from all these different places in Scripture. And one of the main themes of Handel's Messiah is from the book of Revelation, where it says, and he shall be called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What does that mean? We have presidents of presidents in in Colorado, in Denver, in, in the U.S., right? King of kings, Lord of lords. I mean, this is the claim of Jesus over and over again. This is the claim of Jesus 
over and over again in the scriptures. The gospels, the gospel of Mark that we have been slogging through a big part of this year. The gospel of Mark, he doesn't even hardly have much of Jesus' teachings in it. He tells you again and again and again of things that Jesus does. And the question that is before the audience, the question that's before the reader, time and time and time again is, who is this? Who is this that calms the sea? Who is this that the winds and the waves obey him? Who is this that heals lepers? Who is this that raises the dead? Who is this? And Mark has very little about his teaching. Matthew, Luke, John, they they have more about his teaching. You can tell with all the stuff that's in red if you have one of those red letter Bibles, right? And here, Simeon, when Jesus is eight days old, says, Jesus is going to cause the rising and falling of many. What does that mean? What does it mean that he's going to cause the rising and falling of many? Well, if you look at Jesus, there are a couple of traits of his that cause the rising and falling of many. One is that he was overwhelmingly repulsive with his message. He was overwhelmingly repulsive with his message. If you read the Gospels and you hear what Jesus says about himself, if you read what Paul, the apostle, says about Jesus, if you read over and over, what it says about Jesus is this. I am Lord of Lords. I am King of Kings. I am God. And over and over and over again, Jesus comes and he looks at all of the physical universe, all of the spiritual universe, all of the mental universe. He looks at it all, at all of creation, and he says, it is mine. What if somebody come to you today and said, I own you. I own you. I, when I was a youth pastor, I used to walk up to kids, and we, back then it was like, who's your daddy, you know? And I was kind of like fighting words. So we'd pick like some punk kid, hey, who's your daddy? And some kids, because you hadn't beat them up yet, decided, oh, you can't talk to me like that. And before you know it, all of us youth pastors, we got them in a headlock and we're, you know, give them a hard time. We don't do that anymore because you can get sued today for these kind of things. This was like 25 years ago. We had a lot of fun with kids. Who's your daddy? I do this with my kid brother. <laughs> you know, I don't do it with my dad because he's my daddy. But In a way, coming up and saying, who's your daddy, is like saying, I own you. You're mine. I can take you. And if somebody comes up and says that, especially to us men, right? I can take you. You're mine. I own you. <laughs> Excuse me? I mean, those are kind of fighting words. I mean, you either reject that person and get out of here. You're a moron. You know what you're talking about. Or, you, all right, let's go. Let's throw down. Let's, how big a boy are you, right? And Jesus comes along and he says, I own you. See how he's going to cause the rising and falling of many? If he comes in and says, I'm Lord of Lords. I'm King of King. You're mine. What responses are available for you? No, Uh uh-uh. I'm my own person. You can't tell me what to do. That's what most Americans say to most everybody who comes along and tries to tell them what to do. What do we say? 
You see, it's combative words. Jesus himself says these things. Matthew chapter 10, he says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword and to bring fire to the world. Jesus himself says this. Time and time and time again, he says, whoever loves mother or father or brother or sister more than me is not worthy to be my disciple. The rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, he says to him, if I am not more valuable to you than money, then you can't follow me. Simeon knew this was happening with Jesus. The Holy Spirit, remember three times it said the Holy Spirit was on him. The Holy Spirit told him to go to church that day. The Holy Spirit said, that's the kid. The Holy Spirit revealed to him things about Christ and he saw he will cause the rising and falling of many. And the reason was because Jesus' claims are overwhelmingly repulsive to us. You can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me these things. You have no ownership of me. It's so repulsive to us. You know, if this is his claim, and it's this repulsive, how on earth would anybody want to rise with the guy? How would he ever encourage somebody to follow him? And the reason is because his life was overwhelmingly attractive. The way he lived, the way he spoke, how he did things. If you read the Bible, if you read the Gospels, time and time and time and time again, the people that liked him, the people that were attracted to him, the people that hung out with Jesus were nothing like Jesus. Their word for it was tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. Those are the people that Jesus spent his time with. And those who were repulsed by him, the people who didn't like him, were the religious people. You see, his life was overwhelmingly attractive. He was humble. He was kind. He was compassionate. He was tender. He spoke to the outcast. He spent time with the, the lepers and touched them. The manner in which he, he lived was so attractive. It just, it just brought people to him like a moth is drawn to a flame. And it's so interesting because you ha- here you have this combination in one person where his claims are overwhelmingly repulsive and yet his life is overwhelmingly attractive in one person. And rarely do you get this combination. You never get this combination. Today, nowadays, we still have nutcases walking around saying, you're mine, I own you, I'm the Messiah, (laughs) come follow me. Today, in the world, we call those cults. We think of those people as mentally ill. Some of those people are even on television. And the better adjusted of us We recognize it and go, you're off your nut. There's something wrong with you. But Jesus, he made those kinds of claims about him, but he lived a life that was just so attractive. If Simeon's right, though, if Simeon's right that the rising and falling is going to be caused by Jesus, why is it that so few people are rising and falling today? Have you ever wondered? Why is it that the vast majority of people in America are Christians? 
I came across a new word after this presidential election. The people that voted for Trump in droves were what are called notional Christians. Notional is a word that means in name only. In name only. People who don't know how to define the gospel, don't know who Jesus was. They think he's a nice guy. They, they know something about the Bible. They know something about church. But they cannot identify themselves as born again, following Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior Christians. They don't know what that means. And those are the people that came out and voted for Donald Trump in droves. Notional Christians. Now, whether you agree with their decision politically or not, isn't the issue. The issue is our country's full of people who are Christians in name only. And if Jesus is this divisive figure, how could that be? You see, Jesus came to create division between people, to create conflict between people. You are either for him or against him. He came to push you down or to bring you up. He came to rise or fall, to bring you up or down. You will either be repulsed by him or attracted to him. And if this is true, if Simeon is true, if the word of God is true, why ain't this happening? The only explanation I can give is people don't know who Jesus is. Our culture has no clue who Jesus is. My guess is even here in Ray, if you were to just go and stop and talk to the vast majority of people in our town, hey, who's Jesus? You'd hear stuff like, he's a nice guy, a good teacher. He's a moral teacher, a good example for us. Somebody that you're supposed to believe his example was excellent. He's a helpful fella who was like the first Dr. Phil. I don't know. I mean, you're going to get weird answers. Why would you get weird answers? Why would you get weird answers? Because if they give you the right answer, they have to make a choice. You see, today you're going to have to make a choice because you're going to hear the right answer. You're going to hear what Jesus is, who he is. And if you don't make a choice, you're living in a fantasy world. You are being completely deceived. You see, Jesus forces a decision. He's either Lord of Lords and King of Kings, or he's not. He's either Lord and Lords and Kings of Kings, or he's a lunatic. He's a nutcase. Why bother with coming to church ever? Now, obviously, in Ray, Colorado, in Colorado, in Denver on the Front Range, Colorado is becoming one of the least churched uh, societies, one of the least church states in all of the U.S., It's one of the least church places. And the vast majority of people who aren't churched in Colorado are not people who are, who are angry at Jesus. The vast majority of people who don't go to church aren't people that are saying, oh, I hate Jesus and I hate the church and I hate Christians and I hate what they stand for. The vast majority of people who don't go to church in Colorado are people who would say they're a Christian but they don't know who Jesus is. This one's going to hurt a little bit. I would venture a guess that a lot of people who go to church in Colorado don't know who Jesus is. Who have a fantasy 
of who he is. You see, there are definitely people in this world who have decided, I hate Christ, I hate the church, I hate Christians. But there are also those who have decided, Jesus Christ is Lord and King and Supreme, and he weighs on every decision I make. Every choice I make, everything I do in this life, I want to know what the will of Christ is. He's Lord. But somehow, In our culture, there is this saggy, flabby middle. There's this huge middle where everybody's a moderate. They're moderately Christian. They're moderately religious. But according to Simeon, the middle shouldn't exist. The middle can't exist. Because once you see and know who Jesus is, you have to choose. Is he Lord or is he a lunatic? There is no other choice. He pushes for this decision himself at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, which has all that great, you know, fluffy language about morality and and self-help and all these things. At the end of it, he says, I am coming to judge the world. And you either follow me or you don't. Jesus came to bring division between people. Not only that, he came to bring division in us. He came to divide individual hearts. You see, Simeon says at the end, and a sword will pierce your heart, Mary. And I think Jesus, I think Mary is standing in place of all of us who say, I love Jesus here. Who would not love Jesus more than his own mom, right? His own mother, Mary, loves Jesus. And in many respects, I think she's probably the first Christ follower, the first Christian. And here she stands and Simeon is speaking to her, but I think he's speaking to all those who love Jesus Christ. And he says, a sword, it will pierce your heart too. What does he mean by this? You see, if it's true that Jesus has come to divide people, he's dividing the righteous from the unrighteous, those who follow him from those who don't, those who say, yes, you're Lord, to those who say, no, you're not. How do we get to be those people who say, yes, you're Lord? How do we get to be those people who say, yes, you're king? How do we get to be those people who say, I want to be on your side? You see, the way that happens is through repentance. Have you ever been busted? (laughs) Found out? I mean, one of those big time ones where, you know, There's a couple of responses. One could be that the blood all rushes to your head and you turn beet red. There's also the response of all the blood leaves your face and you turn white. But either one could be the appropriate response when you are truly busted. I'll never forget when I was busted, my dad, I lied to him. And I was found out. My dad had a knack for spankings back then. I was 47. No, just kidding. (laughs) I'm still 47. That'd be like last week. I was a little kid. And I lied to my dad. And he liked to whip me with a belt. And he missed a lot. Because he hit the hamstrings. That was terribly cruel. I didn't lie again. 
Have you ever been found out? Have you ever been found out in your sin? Maybe a spouse found you on a website you shouldn't have been on. Maybe a parent found out that you weren't where you said you were. Maybe a teacher saw you doing something that you shouldn't have been doing. We have all been found out. If you've ever had one of those found out come to Jesus experiences, then you know what repentance can feel like if you repented. You see, repentance is like this antiseptic that is used on a wound. And it stings and it cuts. It's like a surgeon who's wielding this sword to to just reveal the nastiness in your heart, the ugliness, the sin, uh, the selfishness. And just... Ugh. opens it up and oh my gosh look at that it's terrible it's disgusting it's horrible how could you and all of us have that in us and if we're going to name jesus christ as lord if we're going to name jesus christ as savior if this is who he is and we want him to be that for us then we have to repent and it begins by saying i am i, I repent for thinking you weren't enough I repent for thinking that I was God. I repent for thinking that I knew best. See, that's where all of our sin begins. Thinking that, ah, he's letting me down again. He's not coming through again. He is slow again. And I have to fix this. I have to step up. I have to get this done. He's not going to take care of my retirement fund. I got to take care of this. If it means lying, cheating, and stealing, so be it. At least I will be taken care of. But clearly he doesn't care. If I am patient and wait for marriage to have sex, how ridiculous of a notion. He is never going to help me find a a spouse. And once he does, maybe she won't be that attractive. Maybe she won't be that all that I want. Maybe she, I need to fix this for myself. You see, all of our sin begins at that notion of we know better than him. And our repentance is what triggers him becoming Lord of us. If you think I'm talking to non-believers, Christian, you're wrong. Because Luther said, all of life is repentance. And there are times, every single moment of every single day, that you have to remind yourself that I think I'm large and in charge. I don't really trust that Jesus has got my back. I don't really trust that Jesus is taking care of. I don't really think he's going to come through. And you need to repent of that. And you need to humble yourself time and time and time again. And experience that sting of repentance again. There's another sword that's going to pierce your heart. This one's going to hurt a lot. It's called obedience. You ever had the sting of obedience hit you? There are so many times in our lives as Christians where we come to a crossroads and we have a decision to make. One road leads to comfort and what we perceive to be peace, satisfaction, happiness. And the other road, it leads to obedience, to what Jesus would have us do. And Jesus time and time and time again, and Simeon here says that if you follow Christ, there will be suffering. 
there will be a cost. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, then pick up your cross and follow me. Gosh, why couldn't he have said, pick up your Mercedes and hop in and follow me? Why couldn't he have said, pick up your mansion and follow me? Why couldn't he have said something that I want to have, a cross? An instrument of death and torture? This is what you want me to pick up? People might think I want to die. You see, we who are Christians and follow Jesus, we understand that in this world, we will have suffering. In this world, we will have persecution. In this world, we will have troubles. Jesus is the one that I'm quoting there who said those things. But are we despondent that we are despondent? No. Do we despair because we're despairing? No. Are we surprised that we're surprised? (laughs) No. You see, when these things come on us, we come back to Simeon and we read, a sword will pierce your own heart. Jesus Christ came into this world to reclaim this world to conquer the usurping powers in this world. Those who said, ha, you ain't my king. You aren't our Lord. And Jesus Christ has returned and he will prevail. You see, that's what the season of Advent is all about. The season of Advent is a time where we look back to Jesus' first coming in the flesh. But we also with our imagination, with the church's imagination, with the resources in scripture, with all the tradition, we look forward and we project ourselves into the future, into the future when Jesus Christ comes as the hallelujah chorus sings, a individual walking around with blood-soaked garments in heaven and a name upon his leg that says, I am Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And we transport ourselves there. And like John at the end of Revelation says, Lord Jesus, come soon. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that my sermon didn't go on for three hours. (laughs) Thank you as well that uh, you looked down upon us and you saw a world that's just a bunch of problems. A mess. You saw people that don't have a clue how to fix it. You saw people that like to argue, fuss, and fight about just about everything. Because we are so sinful. We are so self-focused. We are so selfish. We can make everything, even Christmas, about us. Even church can become about us. And Lord, we just repent of these things. We thank you that you sent Jesus, your son, into this world. And Lord, for anyone who has never followed you, never decided between whether you are Lord or lunatic, Lord, right now, I pray in faith they would move forward in a desire to repent and to obey, to follow you. Holy Spirit, make it so. 
For those of us who are, have been in church world a long time and who have followed you for a long time, remind us of these truths. Help us to remember that one day you are returning as Lord of this world. And if we want that, if that's good news to us, then help us to bring that to bear in our lives today. Holy Spirit, make it so. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you. Now may each of us name Christ as Lord of lords and King of kings. Amen.